Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. In last week's episode, we looked at executive coaching for lawyers, why it is important, and how we can go about finding and working with an executive coach. We also talked about how to work with a coach to better frame how we view our practices, to ensure that we view them through the lens of business owners rather than as employees. Today, we will continue to look at the importance of executive coaching for lawyers from the perspective of an executive coach who practiced law for many years, both in the private sector as well as for a nonprofit. It is an honor to be welcoming my good friend, John Mitchell, to the show. John is a lawyer and a leader. He is the owner of HMG LLC, which is the parent company to KM Advisors, a boutique consultancy committed to helping lawyers discover their leadership potential so that they continuously develop themselves and their organizations in pursuit of changing the world. John specializes in working with lawyers in formal roles like general counsel, managing partner, practice group leaders, and committee chairs, and those in informal leadership roles. He also supports in-house lawyers transitioning to business roles, junior associates, new partners, major rainmakers, and senior lawyers considering their second season in life. Helping leaders transition to new leadership positions is one area of John's expertise. He has extensive experience assisting women and attorneys of color in successfully applying their talents in new roles and new environments. John's unique background brings personal experience to these types of transitions, and his educational experiences ground those firsthand experiences with sound theory and applied research. John's 20-plus years of business experience ranges from working as a professional in a social service agency to practicing law in a large international law firm to leading a large urban affiliate of an internationally known not-for-profit housing development organization to starting a successful company that helps leaders develop and hone their own unique leadership style. John, thanks so much for joining us today. It's an honor to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, Tina. It's exciting to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, great. So why don't we kick things off by talking about one of the topics that we looked at in the last episode, which is taking a look at why clients hire attorneys. Obviously, they're looking for smart people who are substantive legal experts in a particular area, but there are a lot of other subjective criteria that clients look at when they are hiring attorneys. Based on your experience, both as a practicing lawyer as well as as an executive coach, what do you think are the most critical criteria that clients look at when they make a decision to hire lawyers? Unfortunately, the most critical criteria are all the ones lawyers don't think about. You know, as lawyers, we want to think that we're getting hired because we're the smartest person in the room. We have the deepest expertise in this very narrow subject matter area that the client's having a problem with, and that's what's going to get us hired. And unfortunately, most of our clients think that there's 10 other people who are every bit as good as we are in that particular substantive area. And so they're looking at a host of other factors that help them make a hiring decision. Now, obviously, if you don't have the skills, 
you know, to function as a lawyer in the specialized area, you're not going to even be considered. But once you do, and you're part of that group of 10 other people, or maybe 100 other people that the client thinks can do that work, you have to have some other way to stand out. And so one of the things that bothered me when I was a practicing attorney that I have different insights into now that I'm an executive coach is what some of those criteria are and how important they are to the in-house counsel making these hiring decisions. So as an example, I never believed that the idea that being somebody who's fun to work with would matter. Yet talking with the general counsel about a public securities offering that they were going to do, the issue that came up time and time again was this general counsel wanted a securities lawyer, and they knew they were going to go with one of the really big firms. However, they wanted a securities lawyer who was going to be calm, not raise the blood pressure in the room every five minutes, who was actually going to be entertaining and engaging to work with over a protracted period as they started to pull this, this deal off, and who wasn't going to bombard the GC and her staff with a whole bunch of emails at two o'clock in the morning. So that was one of those issues that when I asked the GC, like, what made the final choice for you? First words out of her mouth were, I needed somebody who's going to be fun because the deal wasn't going to be fun. And so that was important. That's really interesting. I mean, I would imagine that part of those conversations also is trying to find lawyers who are reflective of the personalities of the law department that is looking to make the hire. And obviously, you can't be everything to everybody, which is why you may not be, as a practicing attorney, a good fit for every type of client. But what do you think about that? I think that you're raising a very important issue that, again, it comes up in coaching a lot because as attorneys, we tend to have this bias that if I'm a really good IP litigator or I'm a really good tax lawyer, I believe I can hire, you know, I can handle any you know, IP litigation matter that comes up or any tax matter that comes up for any type of client. And the reality is, while substantively I could handle the matter, I'm not the right fit for all the different types of clients. And the classic example of this that I see time and time again is a client organization that its culture is extremely entrepreneurial. And the lawyer comes from a firm where the firm's culture is extremely institutional. So those two are like oil and water. The entrepreneur wants a fast answer. They want to move quickly. If they've got at least 35% of the available information, they have enough, they can make a decision, and they can move. Whereas that lawyer from that institutional law firm who's often used to institutional clients is looking for, for instance, 65 to 75 to maybe even 90% of the available information before making a decision. The process of doing everything from you know billing the client to how you host meetings to how you deal with staff are all things that vary wildly between an entrepreneurial organization and a big institutional organization. And a lot of lawyers believe they can easily walk the line between the two. And almost all of the in-house counsel, no matter what their perspective is, whether they're institutional or entrepreneurial, will say that they find that most lawyers can't walk the line between the two. You typically fit more comfortably either in an entrepreneurial world or an institutional world. And that's just one example of that difference that you're talking about. Very interesting. So when we take a look at how lawyers build the repertoire of skills, that end up being the differentiators that make a difference in terms of what the potential client or client's buying decision is. There are obviously myriad ways that lawyers can build those skills, including the training that they actually get on the job, particularly when they're a younger lawyer, and the mentoring and coaching that they get both within and outside of the firm. To put this in context, what does executive coaching do? 
and what is the function that it performs that is really separate and apart from the types of training and mentoring that lawyers typically get? So one of the things that's important about executive coaching is that the entire focus is on the client and it's whatever their agenda is, is what is is most important. And that's where we're oriented toward at all times is what it is that that client wants. So in the case of working with a lawyer in a law firm, it means that I am focused on what that lawyer wants to do with their career, to do with building their practice, not what their practice group wants, not what the firm wants, not what their spouse wants, what that particular lawyer wants to do. And so in coaching, one of the things, a very common model that a lot of coaches will use, some variant, is working with the client in the discovery process to figure out what are the skills that they have and what are the skills that they might like to build on, which are typically their strengths. They're going to make them more appealable and differentiate them from other lawyers. So the discovery piece is important because not everyone has the same level of self-awareness. So once your client has started to figure out what works for them, what's unique about them, what is attractive about them to a prospective you know, or client, you can then start to say, okay, well, what can we learn about how you replicate that skill or that characteristic over and over again in a way that's truly natural and authentic to you? Because remember, all of the clients out there, almost all of them, are very sophisticated people who can easily see through you when what you're really doing is putting on a show and what you're doing and what you're being is not really who you are. So part of the coaching process is to help the client learn how to be authentic, how to stay authentic and not step out into these these roles or these styles that they think are important, but are very transparent to the client. And then once your client has started to learn those skills and can repeat them, you want to start practicing and doing what we call experiments. So let's say that one of the skills that you're working on is being more personable, not just being this, you know, scribe who's really good at the law, but somebody who's going to ultimately become a trusted advisor to the client, somebody the client trusts to ask questions about every part of their life, not just about their business life. And so what the client, what the lawyer is working on is being more personable, learning to share more of their personal life with the client in an appropriate manner. And so you might have a series of experiments with the next five client calls that you have. Look for a segue where you can segue from something you're talking about business to something that's in your social or personal life, not getting too deep, just to give you some more practice on what it feels like to make that transition and to see how the client responds to it. So that's an example of a very simple experiment that somebody might work on if they're trying to become more comfortable being more expressive about their whole life. Then what you do is you debrief with your client on a next meeting and you look at what happened? How did it go when you were talk, when the lawyer was talking to his or her client and you were being more expressive, more sharing of your, your personal life? Did it go well? If so, what made it go well? Did it go poorly? Oh, okay. Well, sorry. And what made it go poorly? So we can learn, revise the experiment, and repeat. So you get to the point where you have a series of tools that work well for you, that you're comfortable with, that are naturally who you are. And now that's a series of skills that you can use to differentiate yourself and that are appealing to a certain segment of clients, but not all clients. None of us are going to be you know, appealing to everybody. And now you have a comfort level because you've learned, you've practiced it out there in the practical world, and you know what works for you, which is not necessarily what's going to work for the person sitting in the office next to you. And that's one of the benefits of coaching that training doesn't provide because we can make this incredibly unique to you. Very interesting. One thing that popped into my head as you were speaking about this was, and I think it's worth maybe 
taking a moment here to address it because I've had the privilege of working closely with an executive coach over the years. Not always the same person, but I can vouch for the critical importance in somebody's development, whether it's business development or leadership, the critical importance of coaching. Do you want to just take a moment to talk about the importance and power of perception and how executive coaching really focuses the client's attention on not being maybe as dismissive as they used to be about how important it is to understand how others perceive you? Absolutely. Unfortunately, again, for us lawyers, we don't want perceptions, others' perceptions, to be the deciding factor in a hiring decision or to be the deciding factor in deciding to give you more work or reduce the level of work that you or your firm are getting. We want it to be our great skills, our stunning intellect. And the reality is, even if we are the smartest person amongst a pool of people who are being considered for you know, a particular job, it's one of those things that the perception that the person who's going to hire us has, the client has, really rules the day. And so this is a key component of emotional intelligence. So some people are incredibly self-aware, and they often have an ability to see themselves very closely to how they are seen by others. Other people do not have that same level of awareness, and it's obviously a sliding scale here. And one of the things that coaching can do is to help somebody see themselves the way other people see them, to understand others' perception. Initially, that might be the coach simply mirroring back what they're hearing from their coaching client. And then as the client is sharing stories, the coach will often be able to pick up the cues that the client thinks or the, the, the lawyer thinks that their client saw them a particular way. Yet as they tell a story about the interaction, the coach is thinking, hmm, that's not the message I'm picking up. I think the client saw you know, this lawyer very differently than the lawyer thinks the client saw them. And so that's a key element of coaching. In fact, it's one of the most basic things that an executive coach does is hold the mirror up to a client and help them see themselves as others may be seeing them so that they, the client, in this case, the lawyer, can now make different choices about how they behave in a situation, ideally choices that are designed to increase the likelihood of success, whether that's getting new business or having a positive meeting or whatever it is that your goals are. You want to make sure that each of those interactions ends positively. That's really terrific insight. And I think it's something that even for those in the audience who may not have thought about an executive coach until our interview, I think that, you know, just based on my own personal experience, that aspect of it is some of the most valuable information you ever end up getting. And so just switching gears a little bit, what do you do as a coach you know, if you were to take like 30 seconds to outline how you do what you do for your clients and what you don't do. So, you know, I think some people think that coaching is a form of therapy, for example, and that when they're in crisis mode, for example, that no matter what the crisis is, they can call their executive coach and just lay it all on them. How do you do what you do and what don't you do? Sure. Well, let's talk about what we do do or what I do and what a lot of executive coaches do. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list. Basic things that we do that help people be more successful. And one of those, by the way, is getting our clients to define success for themselves. So not, what, again, what their employer wants, not what their colleagues want, not what their you know, family want, what they want. And then 
coaching can be a very useful tool to help people figure out how do I prioritize? So almost every lawyer I've ever met feels like there's not enough hours in a day to do the things that they want to do, let alone the things that they feel like they also have to do. Exactly. So how do you prioritize? It's a key tool that, that coaching can help you do. And then as you start to do that, how do you develop strategies to reach important goals? And once you have those strategies, and, and lawyers love them because they're a plan, right? And so the more detailed the plan, the better, we think. The reality is the greatest plan in the world is worthless if you don't actually implement it. And so the, another key area is helping people make their plans a little more simple so you can understand them at a glance. And then how do you take action? How do you implement? And that's one of the key things that a lot of clients like about working with a coach is in effect, the coach becomes what we call an accountability structure. So that's a term of art. Okay. It really means you're a tool to help that person be more accountable to themselves. Like, I can't do anything other than fire a client. I have no control over my client. However, knowing they're going to talk to another adult who they're paying money and who has a deep knowledge about them makes many clients feel like, all right, this is something where I don't want to show up and be embarrassed. I said I was going to do certain experiments. I'm going to go do those, and we're going to process them together. Mm -hmm. So that idea of moving from theory into practice and to be able to feel like there's some accountability and it's not accountability that you necessarily just place on yourself, although in essence you really are. But you know I'm showing up on the phone call, you know, if, if you and I were working together, Tina, and you would want to be prepared. Otherwise, you're right. kind of embarrassed. Exactly. And so that's a big piece of it. One other thing I would say that's an important part of the coaching process is we are often, as coaches, giving our clients feedback. And in some environments, especially in the legal profession, it's not a profession that's really known for the quality of feedback that is provided. In fact, it's often known for the fact that there's so little feedback provided. And being able to give your client feedback, even when it's about a third-hand situation that we're hearing about, can be incredibly valuable. And then when you can give your client feedback on something you're actually experiencing with the client in that moment, can be even more valuable because you have an opportunity to raise their awareness about something that they just weren't seeing or that one of their colleagues had raised with them and they thought, oh, that's ridiculous. I don't do that. Well, it's much more powerful in the moment because sometimes when you try to scroll back to something that happened, even if it was relatively recent, like a half an hour ago, people don't see it. Exactly. And so that feedback is critically important. And one of the hallmarks of what I think is a great coach is not their training. It's not their experience. It's their willingness to stick their own neck on the line, take a risk of getting fired and say, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. Or that idea, as interesting as it sounds, maybe the dumbest idea that I've heard come out of your mouth in the last two years or you know, whatever the time period may be. I wouldn't normally tell a client it's a dumb idea, but I might tell them it's an <laughs> idea that doesn't make any sense given all the other you know, ideas, variables, constraints that they had mentioned were important to them. And so that ability to give that honest truth, so it's not truth with a capital T, but it's a truth with a small T, but to be able to speak that honest truth as you're experiencing it as the coach is incredibly valuable because for many lawyers, they have no one in their lives who are giving them that honest feedback on any kind of regular basis. Very interesting. So what don't you do? Well, you said the number one issue, and that's therapy. There are a lot of clients who either have worked with a therapist or are working with a therapist. And I really like those clients because they typically have a very keen understanding for themselves of a line between coaching and therapy. And they're comfortable when I say, I think we're dancing up to the line. Let's talk about it. If we both think it's therapy, we're going to walk away from it or 
ask you to take it back to your therapist. If we both agree it's not therapy, we'll keep the conversation going. If we have a split, I'm going to ask you to take it back to your therapist. And if your therapist thinks this is a coaching conversation, we'll come back to it in the next conversation. So that idea of helping somebody diagnose a problem or fix something that is part of a pathology, something that's interwoven into their, their being, is not something that that coach is going to do. And in fact, we're not licensed to do that. Illinois, where I'm located, and, and almost every single state and union has licensing requirements for therapy. And there are therapists who are also coaches. The American Psychiatric Association, though, also has rules, as do most other professional organizations, about playing a dual role. So even if you have a therapist who's also a coach, they're not supposed to play the same both roles with the same client. You're either one or the other. So that's a biggie. I'm not doing that. Gotcha. Another one that I'm not typically doing is being a consultant. You know, I'm not there. You don't tell me your problem, and then I think about it, and I solve your problem, give you an answer, and you give me some money, and I go away. I may help you think about problems. I even may help you if you totally run out of ideas, generate some additional ideas that you, you may not have thought of, but other clients have used. But I'm not there as a resource to simply be the subject matter expert on attorney compensation or on associate training and development. Now, I may have those ex areas of expertise, and I may sell consulting services. But when I do that, I do it completely separate from the coaching work that I'm doing. And most coaches will tell you that they are not trying to be a consultant. They're not a subject matter expert in a particular substantive area that the lawyer might be looking for. They're really a subject matter expert in this idea about how do you use language to get people to think differently, to see from multiple perspectives, to raise their levels of self-awareness, to take risks and experiment, and then evaluate those experiments, and then learn and grow. That's really the technology that, look, that uh, executive coaches are using. Gotcha. And the final thing that I would say that an executive coach is not, and that's a quick fix. This is actually a slower process in many cases than consulting might be. The big difference is when you work with a coach, you're coming up with your own solutions, and you typically own those solutions because you created them. Often with a lot of help, you still, the client created them. Whereas when a consultant you know, charges you for an answer, and it works, you're happy, hopefully feel like it was money well spent. When it doesn't work, you're blaming the consultant. Right. In coaching, you don't have anyone else to blame. In fact, you don't, we don't want you to blame yourself. Just take responsibility for the fact that that approach didn't work. Come back and try another approach. It's up to you, though, the client. It's not up to the coach. So I, I often tell clients, when the, if they've never worked with a coach, one of the things you have to get ready for is you're going to do a lot more hard work than I'm ever going to do. And if that right. bothers you because you're paying me and you're doing the hard work, don't hire me. Right. No, and I think that that's a very good point. So, John, our time for the first part of our conversation is coming quickly to an end. And so I think maybe what we should do is just talk for a few minutes about the mindset that our listeners out there really need to have before they begin the experience and the journey of working with an executive coach and how they can go about making sure that the coach that they pick is the right person for them. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. Let's talk about two totally different topics here. Then one is the mindset and then others, some quick ideas on how to pick a coach. With regard to the mindset, it's very challenging because you're, you're basically buying a personal service it costs more than most personal services you've ever paid for for yourself, unless you're lucky and your organization is paying for it. And as a result, there's often some resistance to this until you've worked with a coach before. 
So that's one thing. Just getting over that mindset of, I'm spending all this money on me. You're worth it. It's an investment. If you're not worth the investment, then don't do it. And yet I've never met somebody who wasn't worth the investment. So hopefully all of your listeners that think coaching might be helpful will look for a coach and have a conversation. So that would be number one. And then number two, the idea where we talked about feedback is really important. And so you don't want to go into a coaching relationship if you're going to be resistant to getting feedback. And some of that feedback may be in the form of constructive criticism or teaching you how to expand an area where you're maybe okay at something and it would really impact your success if you could become much better at it. Not necessarily fixing a deficit, but taking something, what we call a learning edge, something that you might be okay in, and it would really impact you well if you could take it to another level. So you have to be open to that kind of feedback. I think it's important. There's a process that all coaches use, and each, each pro- coach has a slightly different process, but being able to commit to a process and work within that process is going to make that whole coaching engagement work better for you. You have to also be open to changing three things that are likely to be very challenging, and those are changing beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. And behaviors are the easiest because we can fake them for a few moments, and so we can, I change the behavior. Yeah. Changing them permanently, much more difficult. Changing our attitudes is incredibly difficult and yet incredibly powerful. We don't have time to share a bunch of stories, but you know, all of us have had the experience where we've decided we're not going to let something bother us, even though something bad was happening, and we've had a much better day, a much better experience because we've actually changed our attitude. And the last thing I think is the hardest, and that is changing a belief. And we all have beliefs, some self-limiting beliefs, some very destructive beliefs, that if we can learn to change them to write a new story for ourselves, we can literally have a different life, a, a better life. And so learning to do that is big. And then the final thing I would say, Tina, about the mindset is you just have to be committed. You've got to bring your goals, your ideas to the process and not expect the coach to sit there and hand them to you. Yeah, I agree with that. And then I think you can make this work. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, staying as part of that commitment is understanding that it isn't always going to be easy. There are going to be times when the coaching process goes smoothly and, you know, you are happily engaged with your coach and then life happens. And as your coach is working through issues that you are dealing with in your daily life, you will feel confronted. And it's important that people not walk away from the coaching relationship just because the coach holds you accountable in a way that makes you feel confronted. And that's a very good point. I'm glad that you raised it because it's one of those things that each coach is different in how they they do that. That's what you're calling a confronting process. I try to be incredibly gentle early in the relationship so that somebody can get used to that happening and build a little bit of both readiness and awareness of it. And then as we move deeper into the relationship, I get much more direct, much more direct. And that can be challenging for some people. Let me talk quickly about picking the coach before we completely run out of time here, because I think it's really important for anybody who's listening that does decide they want to look at a coach. Okay. In the ideal world, you work for an organization that has a really strong professional development department or team, and they've vetted a whole bunch of coaches for you, and all you have to do is go out and interview them. And that's the ideal world, in my opinion because they've done all the hard work and they've learned what makes a good coach and you don't have to spend your time on that. Most of us don't live in that world. So for those of you who don't, one recommendation I have is start telling people that you're looking for a coach. More and more organizations, law firms and legal departments are using coaches and especially law departments because so many corporations as part of their leadership development programs 
use coaches that you can often find somebody either in another law firm or at a client that has used multiple coaches and you can get recommendations. And that's what I would say is get recommendations. That's going to be your next best way to do this. And then interview coaches. I always recommend that you interview at least two people. If you can make the time work, I would actually say three people. And if you're not feeling great after interviewing three, interview more. And the most important things I think that you need to come away from after these interviews, and you need to understand, by the way, that most coaches, at least experienced coaches, are going to be interviewing the hell out of you in a way you're not interviewing them. They're going to learn more about you in the interview than you're going to learn about the coach. That's okay. What you're really looking for, in my opinion, is some chemistry. Do I feel like there's an ability to connect there? Do I feel like I can trust this person? Because for coaching to work, you've got to be able to reveal a lot about yourself. You've got to be able to share some deep things about yourself. Sometimes, you, you know, your fears of being successful or of pursuing that big client, you know, that you might not want to tell somebody out loud. And that's going to be really important. So that to the extent that you feel there's some chemistry there, there's a connection there. For me, that's one of the very best signs for a client who's doing an interview with a series of coaches to decide that maybe they're going to be okay. And it's okay, by the way, to have a coach where you feel some connection, but you feel like, ah, they're going to get me out of my comfort zone a lot. Right. That's where you are in your life right now. That's the right coach for you. Exactly. Well, that has been incredibly helpful. And I feel like I have just reaffirmed the reason why I've been working with coaches off and on the past 10 years. And I've really learned a lot from you. I mean, we've known each other for 25 years and I learned a lot from you when we first met and I continue to learn from you and I very much appreciate it. Do you have a way for our listeners to reach you to the extent they would like to contact you? Absolutely. So three easy ways to reach me. First is on LinkedIn, and that's where a lot of people do find me. It's John Mitchell. And then my Twitter handle is the Purple Coach. I am not a prolific tweeter. I do try (laughs) to get some things out there, though. So you may occasionally stumble across me. And then email is, is one of the simplest, and that's simply purplecoach at kmadvisors.com. And that's the fastest and easiest way to reach me. But however you choose to reach me, I'm happy to talk with anybody about the benefits of coaching. And in fact, I've worked with a coach since my first year in the business, and I continue to work with coaches throughout my entire time as an executive coach because I'm a big believer in the power of coaching, and I get the benefits from it the same way my clients get a benefit from working with me. Well, that's terrific. And thanks so much for joining us today. And I look forward to the second part of our conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. I hope that you've enjoyed laying the groundwork about executive coaching and why it is important for lawyers. In our next episode, we will continue our conversation with John and drill down on some specific tips on how lawyers can improve their professional performance through working with an executive coach. We hope that you will join us. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.